Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So the way I put context around this, James, is you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you wanted to get your message out to a mass audience, all of those megaphones were owned by big corporations. The television networks, the movie studios, radio, if you want to become famous in 1985, you had to go through the Hollywood system, right? There was no other way. So it was very exclusionary, right? And then the internet came along and changed everything. So now you basically had a movie studio in your pocket and you could broadcast to the world. So this ushered into this time of YouTube famous, right? Where all these kids, you know, in the parents' basement in Omaha are making hundreds of thousands of dollars just by blasting to the world and creating all this content and connecting with consumers. And so that started to snowball. So the good news is that in 2019, everyone has a megaphone. The bad news is that in 2019, everyone has a megaphone. Right, like you mentioned in the book, 500,000 hours of content per day are uploaded to YouTube. It's crazy. Five billion hours, I think you said, are viewed every day. It's, it's crazy. And, and so the idea of a one-minute YouTube video somehow getting like a billion views, that's like a needle in a haystack. And yet, it's not random. Because if it was random, your track record would be like you're the, the most amazing lottery winner in the world. Yep. There is a formula for doing it. Yes. Sharing is the magic bullet. You figured it out yourself, right? Like, engagement is great likes, comments, those all factor into the equation. But when someone will share something, that is a very, very personal action, right? And so we talk a lot about the digital walls. So when I was growing up, you'd have a poster on the wall, right? You might have Michael Jordan on the wall. You might have the Terminator or a girl. You had Farrah Fawcett on the wall. Don't, <laughs> there we go. don't try there to we go. say all these sports <laughs> people. I know your age. <laughs> All right, so excited. Uh, got Tim Staples. If you don't know his name, you're going to be glad you know it now after this podcast. He, he, he wrote the book, uh, just came out, Break Through the Noise, The Nine Rules to Capture Global Attention. And the reason he can write a book like this, this is not some BS business self-help social media book, which I hate. The reason he is qualified to write this is he has made so many videos that have gone viral. I almost hate the word viral, but let's just say it's had millions of views or tens of millions of views, hundreds of millions of views. Have you done a billion view uh, video? We have, yeah. Uh, Did you do the Dua Lipa one? We did the Dua Lipa, yeah. So 1.8 billion views it's up to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, but you've done it so many times. I've seen a lot of one-off people do it. I've I've talked to them. I've been on, they've been on the podcast. I've seen a lot of one-off people do a viral video, but no one who has so consistently come up with a formula for making YouTube videos, Facebook videos, whatever, viral. Uh, you, did, you start off with an example with Christian Ronaldo. Uh, you, you've done a lot of stuff with uh, my buddy Jay Shetty. I, the last video I saw of his on Facebook got 35 million views. I can't even imagine how he did it. And I couldn't for years. And now I know because he knows you. So we're going to talk about many things. But awesome. How do you get started in this? Yeah, I, you know, for some context on me, I, I started in the sports business, actually. And then I started working with celebrities and then discovered uh, social media kind of by accident. I was running a beach house in Malibu. We took over a $20 million beach house in Malibu. And I threw 40 celebrity events in 60 days. So wait, what does it mean you took over uh, a celebrity so, beach so house? I, I first, want to do that. My, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> so my first business was connecting brands with celebrities. And building promotional platforms. And how did, how did you decide to do that? Like if I like, so let's say there's lots of let's say mid tier brands. So Nike knows how to meet celebrities; they don't need you. But if let's say some mid tier brand, like some uh, brand that's just moving up, maybe they they've 
gotten over the first hump of uh, of sales and and youth are starting to buy, you know, young people are starting to buy their product. They come to you and say, "Hey, we need a a, a huge soccer player." Yeah. How did you come up with this idea? What made you qualified? Well, well it started. I, I originally was going to go into advertising, right? So I thought when I when I came out, advertising was still cool. But then I, the last minute, I took a U-turn and got into sports and started representing athletes. We all know that athletes have all this social appeal, and they can be used in these big campaigns. But what I saw is they had all this appeal at the boardroom level. If you were standing next at the time we represent Scottie Pippen, right? If you were standing next to Scottie Pippen, you were king, right? If I was standing by myself, Tim Staples, 25-year-old copywriter, I was a nobody, right? And it was, it was an early lesson that left a real imprint on me. And so then as I, I moved to LA, I got into the, the celebrity business. It was about connecting celebrities with brands and having mutual benefit. And the big thing that we did is we said, hey, don't bring out your checkbook. Don't just write a big check because that's what everybody does. And in Hollywood, once you're a check, you're always a check. So we what actually- What does that mean? What, that means that if the, if, if the agents and the celebrities view you as a check, they won't treat you like a partner. So if you're a brand- and you're gonna cut a check to Scottie Pippen or Miley Cyrus, for instance, right? Once you pull out that checkbook, they'll only give you the exact minimum amount they have to to get their check. I see. Right? So we, it was about 2008, 2009, it was right at the time when Hollywood was kind of a little bit broke from the recession. And so we engineered this whole model, I called it value for value, right? And we basically said, you know, it was a time when the studios and the networks wouldn't pay for these events for celebrities anymore. So if Jamie Foxx wanted to launch his radio show on Sirius Satellite Radio, they, no one could pay for it. And you know who definitely wasn't going to pay for it? Jamie Foxx, right? So we stepped in with brand money, and we said, hey, we'll underwrite these events, and we'll, we'll pay for everything. We'll do all the valet. We'll do you know, all the food and drink that you want. We'll throw this really great event, red carpet. But in return, you have to do X, Y, and Z for us. And so how did Jamie Foxx know you, know to reach out to you, how did you reach out to the yeah, brands? Yeah, so we, we, we just, you know, I came from the sports business, so we started with relationships. And you know, every athlete wants to be a hip-hop artist, and every hip-hop artist wants to be an athlete, right? So there's a lot of crossover. But we just, we just hustled, honestly. In the early days, we said, oh, we would go to the studios and networks and say, hey, you want to throw this event? Yeah. You don't want to pay for it? Yeah. All right, we'll pay for it. But here's what we need in return. And, and so who would you reach out to in the brand space? So we worked with, like, some of our early clients. Like, one of our biggest clients in the early days was LG Mobile Phones. And like, okay, so who did you reach out for, for Jamie Foxx, for instance? Yeah, so we, that actually came through, I believe, uh, Sirius Satellite Radio when he was launching, literally launching a show, and right? What did you, what did you ask him to do? So what basically, oh, so, 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 so this is back to the beach house. I took, my company took over a beach house for 90 days in the summer in Malibu, $20 million beach house. And we basically said, if you want to throw an event here, the cost is nothing. We will cover everything that you could ever imagine. Food, drink, security, keep the paparazzi out, run the red carpet, right? But in return for us covering that big expense for you, studio or celebrity, we want X, Y, and Z. X might be a feature in Us Weekly. Y might be a, a video clip on Yahoo. Z might be something in USA Today, right? And we would literally negotiate it as a value-for-value value partnership. You would negotiate it with the studios? The studios, the networks, the celebrities, the managers, whoever, whoever wanted to throw the event. How could they guarantee you a, a feature in Us Weekly? Well, we, we would just say, hey, we want to be able to pitch X, Y, and Z. And if we can get it, we can get it, right? And in and, and most cases, you know, these celebrities were at the level that you could get real value in these different uh, verticals. And that was really early days of the internet. Um, but my point in telling this story is, I ran 40 celebrity events in 60 days, right? Every day a different celebrity shows up. Early days of the Kardashians, if you remember The Hills, Jamie Foxx, Sylvester Stallone. And so every day, that it was like the early days of social media. So for the first time, these celebrities were like going around these big studios and networks and actually building a relationship directly with their fan base. And I saw it, I, I felt like I was seeing the future every day, right? When they, they would put out a post and it would just like blow up online. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I have to do for the rest of my career. So, so, so wait, so, and I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but there's a lot I'm trying to understand. And then, and we haven't even begun to get to all your, the viral videos and, yeah. and the book and everything. But uh, why would Sylvester Stallone hold an event? Like what kind of event was he holding? I think it was, oh, he, it was actually a charity event. So okay, he, so he had a charity. partnered with Puma uh -huh. on, a, on a charity event. The beautiful thing about Hollywood, man, you've been around it. No one ever wants to pick up the check. 
Right? No one ever wants to pick up the check. Right. I end up picking up all the checks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've lived that life too. And, and so what we basically did is said, we have an open checkbook to go help you promote different things that you want to promote. Right? We're not going to write you a check as a celebrity or as a studio, but we're gonna, we have a checkbook to offset costs to go do things of mutual value. And the key lesson here, and this is where I learned about value, is when you, when you show up as a check, you're always a check, and they'll treat you as a check, meaning they don't view you as valuable. They just view you as money. Right. But if they view you as a partner, changes everything in terms of how they see the relationship and what they're willing to give to go fulfill it. So you saw like someone like Sylvester Stallone, he has an agenda, which is he has a charity he wants to support. Maybe he doesn't want to use his house for the event. He likes the idea of this huge Malibu beach house. You had the house and maybe you had money to donate to the charity. And then what other value do you bring to the table? You had the guest house. Did you bring brands to the table? Yeah. So, so we underwrote the whole thing with brand money, right? So that was the value for like all the catering, all the, right. Yeah. We underwrote everything. Uh Uh-huh. But for us to underwrite 40 celebrity events at the same beach house, there's economies of scale, mm-hmm. right? So each, each event might've been worth 150 grand, but our cost out of pocket was much less than that. Now, Sylvester Stallone is worth, let's say hundred million. Why, why did he even put himself you know, in mental debt to any brand or person when he could have done this himself? 150 grand is, is a drop in the bucket. Have you ever asked a celebrity to write a $150,000 check? I have never done that. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest you try. It doesn't go well. Even if they have $100 million? The more money they have, the less likely they are to write that check. What about Nicolas Cage? He might write that check. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you get the house in the first place? Basically, here, here was the mindset. We knew that Mariah Carey was going to be the belle of the ball at the Grammys. She was nominated for seven Grammys. Yeah. We knew if we went to Mariah Carey to be part of our party, it would be two, $2 million. Yeah. Right? So we knew that wasn't an option. We knew that Jermaine Dupree, who was producing her album, throws the best parties. So we went to Jermaine Dupree. And we said, we want to throw a party with you, knowing that Mariah would come along with him, right? And so we didn't have to deal with Mariah at all. We underwrite the party with with Jermaine. It quickly becomes the party with Jermaine and Mariah. Next thing you know, there's 200 celebrities there, and it's the hottest event of the year in the space. And we underwrote it and got all that value. But but how did you get the house? Whose house was it? That was Ron Burkle's house, actually, in Bel Air. And why did he want to— Man, these things always take on their own tail. And Ron Burkle said, sure, use my house for the next 90 days. I'm not going to be here anyway. No, no. So so that was a one-off event around the Grammys. So then we actually went and said, okay, we want to do this for the full summer. This this works. So let's go through 40 events over the summer. And so we, we found a beach house. It was actually right next to Donald Sterling's house in Malibu. That was an interesting summer, uh, who used to own the Clippers. Uh, and so we said, okay, this is, this is exactly what we need. We pimped it out with LG head to, head to toe. And then we started making calls and we said, who wants to use this beach house? We'll pay for everything. I see. So you called like agents say, we called, we called a lot. Usually it's managers for us and publicists agents. You don't get anything done. And then, and then they would say, well, yeah, I have a client who is into this charity and he'd love to throw a huge party. So, what, so what's the benefit to the, to the celebrity? They get, they get an event paid for. So, so usually it's driven by uh, forces beyond them, like a studio or a network that wants to save money and has the celebrity under contract that they can go do that. So like the studio might say, we have a movie coming out in three months. We want to build up the, the brand. You yes. know, we want to have uh, celebrity XYZ at a party and we'll invite all the media so they can get to know them and, exactly right. and you know, in anticipation of this movie coming out. Well, now remember, this was a moment in time to 2008, 2009, where nobody wanted to pay for anything because we were in the middle of a recession. All and the, the budgets were cut. And at the same time, you have these celebrities taking snapshots of themselves and all their friends, posting it on somewhere, and they're blowing up on social they're media. Blowing, I mean, so, so they made the connection also that, hey, uh, I'm go- getting a direct relationship. Like, like The Rock is the, the leader of this. He got a direct awesome. relationship, the, the biggest of anybody. He got a direct relationship with his audience. So now he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood. It's a direct uh, relationship. He was one of the guys who embraced it early. A lot of people didn't, mm-hmm. right? So, so the way I put context around this, James, is you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, if you wanted to get your message out to a mass audience, um, all of those megaphones were owned by big corporations, right? So the television networks, the movie studios, radio, right? So if you want to become famous in 1985, how did you do that? Right? You had to go through the Hollywood system, right? There was no other way, right? Really, really difficult, one in a million, right? Or if you wanted to get your brand message out to millions of people, how'd you do that? You bought something called commercials, right? And you spent hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So it was very exclusionary, right? And it was very difficult or it was very expensive. And then the internet came along and changed everything, right? So now you basically had a movie studio in your pocket and you could broadcast to the world, 
right? So this ushered into this time of YouTube famous, right? Where all these kids, you know, in their parents' basement in Omaha are making hundreds of thousands of dollars just by blasting to the world. From their ads. From, well, from their ads and, and creating all these, this content and connecting with consumers. And so that started to snowball. So the good news is that in 2019, everyone has a megaphone. The bad news is that in 2019, everyone has a megaphone. Right, like you mentioned in the book, 500,000 hours of content per day are uploaded to YouTube. It's crazy. Five billion hours, I think you said, are viewed every day. It's, it's crazy. And, and so the idea of a one-minute YouTube video somehow getting like a billion views, that's like a needle in a haystack. And yet you have, you know, it's not random because if it was random, your track record would be like you're the, the most amazing lottery winner in the world. Yep. There, there is a formula for doing it. Yes. Yeah, and so what we come down to is like if everyone's shouting all the time, everyone's got the same megaphone, then no one, no one hears it, right? So then how do you break through that noise? How do you get people to pay attention, right? And so what we, what we believe is that you have to be shareable. What does that mean? It means worthy of being shared. Right. It means you have to create content that's so compelling that it compels someone to share it on your behalf. Let, let, let me ask you a question because I, I feel this way about, you know, even back in, 2009, 2010, when I was writing um, some articles, I would always start off posting it on Facebook. And it was almost a way to test an article yeah. uh, and even test a chapter in a future book is that if I saw how many shares, I didn't even care how many likes it got. If it got like a lot of shares, yeah. uh, then I knew, okay, people are responding to something viscerally about this. It might be the title. It might be the topic, like maybe more, maybe it was the you know, usually I would have a story about myself and then I would have like 10 points I learned and then I would have usually a, a photo. So the photo might be shareable and that was the only thing people cared about or the article or the title or whatever. Sharing is the magic bullet. You figured it out yourself, right? Like engagement is great. Likes, comments, those all factor into the equation. But when someone will share something, that is a very, very personal action, right? And so we talk a lot about the digital walls. So when I was growing up, right, you'd have your bedroom wall, you'd have a poster on the wall, right? You might have Michael Jordan on the wall, right? Or you might have the Terminator or a girl. You had Farrah Fawcett on the wall. Don't, <laughs> there we go. don't try there to we go. say all these sports people. <laughs> I know your age. So, so, so those, those were the walls when we grew up. Those were the bedroom walls. Now that is, that is gone, right? And it's been replaced by these digital walls. Right, so, so your Facebook account, your Instagram account, what you share and what you put out to the world defines who you are. Right, because you mentioned um, people often share after they've only watched the video for like 20 seconds. They might not even watch the whole video and already know, oh, I gotta let all my friends know about this. Because it's kind of their, your way of letting your friends know what, what content you value, even if you haven't seen the whole video. People think that you share because I love you. You actually share because you want people to love me, mm -hmm. right? You, it's a reflection of how you, people see you in the world, right? So if I share something that's really intellectual, I look smart. If I look some, share something that's funny, I look like a comedian, right? I'm putting this out to the world. I'm super selective because it represents me. I would never share something, just a random commercial from a brand. What does that say about me, right? But if I see this video that gives some, somebody hope in a really strong way or drives a really strong emotion that I want to reflect onto me, course I'm going to share that and be part of it. And when you think about it in that perspective, it's a very, very powerful concept. So, and you talk about this pretty early on in the book. What are, I mean, you have a lot of lists and formulas yeah. and I, and I like that it's very prescriptive about how to make the best possible content. And I've, I think I've done it from a writing perspective, which is much less viral than a video perspective, but a lot of it resonated with me and I'm interested in trying out some of these ideas on video, but what are the elements that you think make a video shareable or anything shareable? Cause yeah. I think, I think the things you describe apply to anything. Yes. Yeah, so I agree with you. Mm. And, and as you think about a brand or a personality it's more written from that perspective than an individual piece of content. And I think that's important, but being shareable, I've, I've been, I've been playing around with the formula to kind of make it real, um, which is V plus E times T squared. Oh, wait, v, do you have a pen? I don't have a pen. J? V plus E times T squared. And I'll explain what that means. Okay. Oh, thanks so much. Got it. 
All right, V? V plus E times T squared. Okay. So what this is, and it's early in the book, so, so this is value plus emotion times timing and technology, which are the boosters. Okay, but, that so far doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, so let's start, <laughs> let's start with one of the early lessons of the book. Uh, it's called Focus on Value. So many people are so focused on themselves and they think about being a big YouTube star or being a valuable brand. They think about me, 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 and how do I project that to the world? That's advertising, right? And I think in this day and age, it's absolutely 100% wrong, however you define it. We believe in shareability is actually the opposite of that. It's starting with an audience that you want to reach, understanding what they want, not what you want to give, and then finding a unique way to give that to them. Okay, so, I mean, and I know you work with with uh, Jay Shetty. Clearly, yeah. he provide. It's usually just him facing a camera talking, and then there's often, if he's telling a story, there's like a lot of B-roll of the story, and there's also uh, text, so you don't, so you can watch on silence. It's, 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 it's sort of a transcription of the video as well, but he provides a lot of value. He might make a video, how to deal with the loss of a loved one, or how to bounce back from a failure. So that, that's like very direct value. What's something that's a little bit more indirect value that, that you've seen, well, that, I, that you've worked on? I, I think walking through the emotions would be helpful because Jay is incredibly shareable. When you think about his backstory, he was a monk yeah. for three years, right? And then what I've, what I've been noticing recently, because I've been doing a lot of studying, is so fascinating to me. The people that are really shining in the internet age take on very similar traits. Um, they may look completely different, but they take on similar traits. And one of the things that have been super fascinating to me is looking at people that have really successful podcasts like yourself mm. and breaking down why do people care? Because how many options do you have for podcasts right now? A million? Yeah. Right? You have yeah, every uh, option, They right? hand it out at JFK Airport <laughs> They do. Like, anyone can start a podcast, <laughs> literally, right? Um, but as you start to look at the emotions that are triggered, because I, I think we're, we're emotional beings, and I think everything comes down to emotion. I think people think they make decisions based on fact, but they only use fact to back up the emotions that they're feeling, right? And so you have to understand that this is emotional. Everybody's selfish. They're going to act based on their own wants and needs, Right, and when they when they encounter emotion, that's what's going to spur them to take action. So I think it's actually interesting to go through the shareable emotions, which we we called out in this book, and see where they play and if there's some similarities between the people you talk about. Yeah, and I want to I want to find the chapter where you you I think it's um yeah here's the five shareable emotions. Yeah, so, you, you start out, okay. Go ahead. So there are so many emotions right that could drive and 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 what we found over the course of the last five years is we've really honed in on these five that we think have the most impact that are proactive emotions that are also positive because there's a lot of negative emotions too like anger and fear that can drive people to do things but they're very polarizing right um, and then there's other emotions like sadness that can be really powerful but it's actually a passive emotion what happens when you get sad. You shut down. Yeah, you don't necessarily share a sad. You don't want to share a sad. Why would you want to make your friend sad? Yeah. Right? That's not a good friend. But if there's, if there's the first emotion, happiness or joy, you see something that makes you happy, wow, you want to share that so fast because you want to make your friend happy. Yeah, you did, uh, you did one video of uh, babies. At, what if the Olympics, baby were, Olympics. For, were held for babies? <laughs> and it, just like, just A, people love the baby videos. It makes... It, almost from for evolutionary reasons people get happy looking at babies and then yes. just mixing it like it's kind of having sex with the idea of the Oli babies plus olympics yes. is is like a happy thing people love the olympics people love babies combining the two which nobody's ever done has to be a happy thing amen and and, and you know we we call that category ador adorable babies but it could be kids it could be puppies We've had a lot of success with videos with both. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just giving, literally, there's something really powerful in just making someone smile for a minute of their day. So, so, so this category of happiness, this could include, like, comedy videos. This yes. could include, um, like, remember, uh, I'm sure you do a Casey Neistat's video. Oh, oh Nike just gave me $10,000 to do a, a video. Forget that. I'm just going to travel around the world. Now, obviously, he was just doing it, and the whole thing was really a commercial, but it's kind of this mischievous rebel yeah. idea that we all related to. Oh, I'm going to just take this money and run around the world. And you see him running around the world, very fast-clipped, you know, 
going all around the world, talking to women on the beach, doing this, doing that. And it was funny and it was surprising. And so it made people happy to watch well, that. Well, you nailed on one of the other key emotions, which is surprise. You know, it's, you think you're going to go one way and you go completely the opposite, grabs people's attention. What's a great example of that? Well, I think the Casey Neistat video is a great example of that, right? Like, hey, they gave me money to make an ad, throw that in the trash. I'm not going to make an ad. I'm going to go make the thing I want to make. Oh, awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, you go a completely different direction. We, we did something with, with John Cena um, where we had him burst through the wall to surprise some of his super fans. Um, it was one of the biggest videos we've ever done. And, and the reason is when you combine joy and surprise, it's like a multiplier effect. Well, like I think your video with, I don't, I'm not a sports guy, so I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Chris, Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo. So you have him dress up as a homeless person playing with soccer and he's just in the street. And usually he would be the most recognized person on the street, but he's all homeless. Nobody recognizes him at all, even though he's doing amazing soccer tricks. So right there, there's the surprise factor. What will happen next? It's like a curiosity thing. Do, do you have, is, is, is awe separate from curiosity? Yeah, yeah, it is. Although a lot of these cascade together. So that video specifically, the, the context that I want to give you is Ronaldo is like a Greek god. Right, he's he's got the biggest social media following in the world on Facebook. He's a great looking guy. He's like this athlete robot that just destroys on the field, right? And he's larger than life, but he's always been presented like a model, like this very distant figure, right? That just crushes on the field and has this unbelievable social life, but it's very distant. And he has a, he has a connection with his fan base, but it's but it's not one of like wrapping your arms around each other, right? It's one of like, hey, you're up there on a mountain Olympus, and we're down here. And so we knew that if we took him and made him feel and look like a normal guy or even a guy down on his luck, that flip, that surprise would be a very, very powerful element, right? Now, so now you got surprise, you've got awe because there's the awe of, like, the second emotion is awe. So it's all about wonder and respect. It's about saying, oh, wow, isn't that cool, right? So the idea of him doing this, the biggest athlete in the world, he can't walk five feet in Madrid without getting mobbed. And, and then you had the happiness with the little boy starts playing exactly right. soccer with him. And I think if you had stopped before then, still would have probably been a big video. Uh, but I think you kind of lucked out that there's this amazing, like, remember that um, commercial, Coke commercial, Mean Joe Green throws the t-shirt to the little boy? So it, you had that element. So, so let's think about it. We, we hit surprise. We hit awe. We hit happiness with the boy. We also hit empathy, put himself in the shoes of the boy and played with him, and they had this connection, right? So we hit four of the emotions. If you hit one emotion, you can break through and have a little bit of noise for yourself. If you hit two emotions, now you're onto something. But if you hit three or four emotions and hit them strong, you have a worldwide global hit. And that, that video was the fastest video. It was the fastest video to 30 million views in the history of the internet. And how, how many does it have right now? Uh, wait, see, the thing about those videos, they get cut and re-ripped and cut yeah. and re-ripped. So it's in the hundreds of millions. So, so okay, so, so the emotions that you have right in here, happiness, awe, empathy, curiosity, which is, is what you're also referring to as surprise. And um, oh, cu curiosity and surprise are two separate ones. Okay. So cu curiosity is all about intellectual interest, presenting information to the world in a way it hasn't seen before. So, like, do you think the like the how stuff works type of videos? Uh, Which stuff? Like how stuff works or how to build this? Yeah. yeah. So all the science stuff is all mm -hmm. curiosity based content. But you yeah. have to present it in a different, a unique way, I guess. You're you're a curiosity guy. Yeah. So. So I mean, you're, you're, who you're, the hell is this guy? You're 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 an incredibly shareable guy. You've clearly always understood it in your gut, right? Because no one taught it to you. Mm. But like, look at the emotions. I would ask you, do you think you're shareable? I know my written content is. I don't know if my video, and I know the podcast is. I don't know if my video content is. I don't, mm. I haven't really created a video. I mean, I've had my TED talk out like a half a million views, but not, not too throw, many throw videos. Throw your video out. I don't care about that. You as a personality are a very shareable person, right? And the emotions, as I look at it, Let's see if this resonates. Curiosity, right? So you're intellectually curious and you present information to the world in a way they haven't heard before. True or not true? True, because I always have a, sto uh, a, a weird story to go along 
with the information. So like, where is he going with this is the emotion in the writing is the emotion I always try to incite. That's surprise. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then you also like all the good people, like I'm, I'm finding this pattern that uh, uh, of people that are, are crushing the podcast digital space right now, combined empathy. They're able to put themselves in other people's shoes and have that direct connection that they have an every man connection, right? With curiosity, presenting information in a new way that's super valuable with surprise. Their backstories typically combine surprise and a little bit of awe. That ring a bell? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I, I need to figure out how to do this. Well, not need to, but uh, I'd like to figure out how to do this more with, with video and other media. But you make the point, you know, also stick to one at a time. Stick to the media you're, you're good at. Yeah, you can't, you can't, there's, there's this myth that you should go crush every platform and, and content everywhere. Content everywhere was created by an ad agency, right? Because they wanted to put content everywhere and charge you for it. Right. It's just not possible. If you're bad at all social platforms, the idea that you're going to get good at five of them in the first year, it's impossible. But I, I like these f emotions that you describe and you describe them more thoroughly in, in yeah. the book yeah. because A, it does resonate and B, it makes me... You know, just because they resonate and just because I do them, it's good to think about them concretely so I can ask myself per piece of content that I create, okay, now just, now that I know these things not only resonate internally, but they're actually part of a formula that works, I can ask myself almost like a checklist, did I, did I fulfill? Because not in every piece of content I'm able to do these, but I can now enhance what I'm doing uh, to make sure I fit these different emotions. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of flooding my brain right now. Your, your story is, in Hollywood terms, you're the flawed hero. Oh. You're, you're John McClane. You're, you're Will Hunting. Yeah, it's, it's funny because after, you know, there was one point I threw out all my belongings. I was living from Airbnb to Airbnb. Many of my listeners know this, but the New York Times did a profile and major television studios called yeah. and said, can you meet with us? Yeah. And now maybe something's still in, in the works with that, but it is interesting to see how that resonated even from a Hollywood perspective, just people reading that one article. No, you, you, you're, you're a classic Hollywood character. You didn't, you didn't put it set out to be. You just lived your life and you became one of the best stories, but you're a flawed hero by, by Hollywood standards, right? So, so you think about, you know, I think about it this way, like an action movie, right? What are the best action movies of all time? Do you, do you watch action movies? Yeah. So what are, you, what are your favorite action movies of all time? Gosh, I don't know. Name one. Rambo. Yeah. Uh, was there oh, a Terminator. Yeah. Uh, Robocop. Like the Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> ones. <laughs> Awesome. So all those, like Rambo is the ultimate flawed hero, right? Yeah. If you look at uh, how there is an emotional journey, the best action movies actually aren't about action. They're about emotional change so, so, of the but, hero. But, but this is an interesting thing about storytelling. Like, how do you, how does a character remain flawed over and over and over again? Yeah. I'm not even talking about sequels, but yeah. even in like nonfiction stories or, uh, you know, take Casey Neistat's case, you know, after doing like a thousand videos, how flawed can he be? Yeah. No, I, how I, can he keep recreating that? It's, it's an interesting question, right? Because when you go on the, in, in movie sense, you go on the hero's journey, right? So, so Die Hard, great example, right? John McClane, he suffered from arrogance, right? And that movie wasn't really about him defeating all these terrorists. It was about him getting back together with his wife. That was the emotional journey. Start at the beginning of the movie, He's stubborn. He's arrogant. He can't connect with his wife. They're separated. And as he went through this journey of killing all these bad guys and like saving the day, the crescendo was not that. It was actually that he talked to his wife on the phone and they were basically, you thought they were getting back together, right? That was the journey, right? And I think that's so powerful that the, all the best action movies aren't about action. Star Wars isn't about action, right? It's about an emotional journey. The Matrix, right? Great example. Um, I, I was just reading the other day. So are you into Bond movies at all? Yeah. So there have been, as of next year, there'll be 27 Bond movies, mm. right? With how many different actors, right? And they've always been successful on some level. You know the most successful Bond movie of all time? No. 
It's Skyfall, 2012. Mm. Out of all the movies. Wow, and I think I, I think I didn't like that one. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I'm curious why. It's the only Oh, no, movie. you know what? I didn't like Quantum of Solace. Okay. I think you would like Skyfall because it's the only movie that has an emotional arc for James Bond. Was that the Daniel Craig one? Daniel Craig. That was the first Daniel Craig it was one. A, I think it was the second Daniel Craig one, but it was, mm. it was, it was the one that did a billion dollars globally. Mm. It's been the most successful. It's gotten the best reviews. And the reason James mm. Bond started that movie, Daniel Craig started that movie. He got shot. He almost died, and he lost it. And he was old and washed up, and he didn't think he could do it anymore. For the first time ever, James Bond couldn't do it anymore, right? And he spent the whole movie facing those challenges, and then eventually he overcame them, and he figured out he could do it anymore, and he had a big victory at the end. And that resonated at a much bigger, deeper level. There were all the explosions and the gun shooting and the women, the same stuff. But because he took you on that emotional journey, it did a billion dollars instead of $300 million. It was the most successful of all time. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now, but let's take, like, a guy like... Again, Jay Shetty, yep. who you've worked with, you know, he has a backstory which led to him being a monk for three years. And so that's this flawed hero aspect. But he'll do 100 videos. He can't just keep referring to that same backstory each time. I guess he could tell the story of others who are flawed. I, I think he can at some level, right? I, I think you know, your backstory is your backstory. It's kind of binary, right? It's like how you're presented to the world in the first three, three sentences, right? Yeah. And you have a great one. Yeah. Right? So you and Jay Shetty share a great backstory. But but like I see with myself even, there's only so many ways to slice the pie. Hey, man. But, but I don't think you have to recreate your backstory. Your backstory is your back. Mm -hmm. It's in the past. Right? So that's already happened. Um, so that's a strong anchor for you for get people to lean in. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is what it does for Jay as well. Right? So it's surprised with a little bit of awe. Oh, wow, he's a monk for three years. Oh, wow, he, he sold a company and then he lost it all. And he mm. sold a company and he lost it all. Oh, he's this flawed hero, right? Mm. So that brings you into the world. That's all you need it for, in my opinion, right? Now it's about empathy and curiosity. Jay Shetty is all about empathy and curiosity. He relates to his audience in a very direct way. They're very passionate about what he has to say. And it comes from a place of, of goodness and of heart. And the fact that he didn't just pretend to be a monk, he moved to India for three years. He learned all the teachings. When he came back, all his friends were miserable because they were successful and unhappy, and he actually had wisdom to share with them, right? And now he just started sharing that with the world, right? So I think that backstory never needs to change. It doesn't need to get better. It exists. It's awesome. Now just combine empathy and curiosity, maybe with a little bit of surprise and, you know, and, and, and maybe some joy here and there. But, but Jay connects with people on a very different level, right? It's all about your relationship with the world, right? It's about personal empowerment, but your relationship with the world. So we talk about the girl or guy you just broke up with or your relationship with your parents or how you should think about your self-esteem and now you're not liked at school or you're bullied, right? He, he deals with all those topics. But it's really about those same emotions. And I've found that you have very similar, similar emotions. If you look at it, you know, I was talking to Aubrey Marcus, very similar emotions, right? right? He's got a he's got an interesting backstory, right? Where he, you know, the way he looks is not you know, he's a guy's guy, right? Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't think he'd be talking about these touchy feely topics, right? But he goes deep into those topics and he, he's very thoughtful about it. But then it's all about empathy and curiosity and presenting information in a new way. Gary Vaynerchuk, right? He's on the podcast, right? Yeah. So same, right? He's got an interesting backstory. There's some surprise and awe in there. But it's all about his journey, right? He's got it. He's empathetic. You can relate to him. You want to go on the journey with him. There's a reason why in all of Gary's content, it's all shot third person by somebody in the room. He's never talking to the camera in most cases. He's usually just talking. I'm talking to you. It's being recorded. It's uploaded to LinkedIn or Facebook. Hmm. Why is that? He wants you to feel that you're going along with the journey with hmm. him, right? Which is really, really powerful, right? Um, so all, all these guys, you, know, you, Gary Vaynerchuk, Aubrey Marcus, Jay Shetty, couldn't be more different when you look at them, you guys, from, from a distance. But when you start to peel the onion back, you go, wow, it's the same guy. And I think there's also uh, an authenticity to like Jay's story, to Aubrey's no story. And, and that's important because I think the audience is an x-ray machine. They know if you're authentic or not. And I think that's really important. Casey Neistat's very authentic. Uh, Many YouTube stars that we see are very authentic about what they're doing. 
And, uh, you know, I think that's important. I think that's the difference between now the media and branding now and branding, let's say, in the Mad Men era. I always say that one of the superpowers of the audience right now is being able to spot a fake. Yeah. Right? Whether that be a personality or whether that be a brand, we're so attuned to be able to spot an ad. Right? You can spot an ad from, from out of the corner of your eye in a millisecond and know to swipe by it. Right? It's same with the personality. It's like uh, I, I, I've been rewatching Mad Men since I've got it on the mind. But they were, you've probably watched Mad Men. A little Men. bit, yeah. So there was one scene where they were pitching a bank on a new service and they called it the private account. And it was basically for men, for executives who wanted a private account because of, you know, what they were doing on the side, you know, that they didn't want their wives to know. And so I could imagine as an ad, it sounds in the sixties, it might be just very, feel very exclusive, like black heart, American express type of thing. But I imagine uh, that translated into today's YouTube era is some guy telling very specifically, this is what I'm doing with that private account. And it's going to be messed up a little bit, but I am who I am. And yeah. we're going that journey with me. <laughs> and so I could see that being a much more interesting YouTube than the, than whatever the video, the, the ad was in the sixties. People love faults. They, 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 when, you, when you're fallible, it makes you human. And that means that people can connect with you in a different way than if you're, you're this glossy figure that's off in the distance. You know, that's the conversation we had with Ronaldo. It's like, hey, you're powerful. But when you really connect with people and step into their shoes, that's where everything goes to another level. How does The Rock make himself seem the like rock, an everyman? I, what I love about The Rock, man, he's like his, his persona online, he's like a real-life superhero. And he brings empathy Right, he, you're in it with him. Even though he is a superhero, there is that connection in a different way. There's definitely awe. There's physical awe. There's just personality awe. He has a gravity to him that most people don't have, mm. right? And I think he brings happiness. I think he brings joy. I think he goes out of his way to make people's life better. And he has video and content where he surprises people, surprises a part of it, but he's doing it to help them in their life or he might pay a bill or he might do something special for one of his fans. And that, that, that's, that's a really big part of his brand. So, so, okay. So, so what are some, uh, you know, so those are the shareable yeah. emotions. I agree with that. I think that's what percentage of the game is that if you're making a video for someone, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that if, if you don't have the value and the emotion, right, you've got zero. So I, the value and emotion is a hundred percent of it. If you don't have value for the audience and you're not packaging that in an emotional wrapper, both. You have zero. And so so value could either be entertainment or education. And emotion is kind of the storytelling vehicle. The the flawed hero through the arc of the hero is gets you that emotion. The and then of course if the story is written well, you have awe, curiosity, you know, surprise. Yeah, that's where if you can hit the multiple emotions, you can really accelerate. Mm -hmm. Um and then so so once you understand that, that's kind of the base I would say of being shareable, right? Is 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 emotion meets value, then the next step... But And by the way, I'm just... For, for the person listening to this, I think this is very important. This is not about people going home and suddenly making their first video that makes 10 million views. You could use this when talking to your boss, when talking to your kids, when, when writing a letter, when writing an article. I mean, these are very critical things. Shareability is not about social media. It's about how you're connecting with other people in a way that excites them. It's taking a vision that's in your head and and teleporting it to someone else's head. I'm so glad you said that. You know, we get asked every day to go make something go viral, right? And that's a binary thing, it either did or it didn't. And I think it's the wrong way to look at it. It's how can I create incremental growth, right? So if I could help someone that has 500 views right now on their YouTube channel go to 5,000, that's really powerful, right? Or someone from 5,000 to 50,000 or 50,000, 150,000, right? So the concepts here, it's not about this viral moment that's gonna come fleeting and be gone. It's about how do you create a shareable voice that can create value for you as a brand or as a personality that can grow with you. And then one of the symptoms, when you're really shareable, one of the symptoms is virality. You'll have this shareable base and the virality will pop off because you're doing the right things and the right emotions. But that's just a symptom. That just supports the bigger plan. Virality on its own, if it doesn't support a bigger plan, there's no scalable business there. Which I think is to your point later in the book where uh, you, there are many like one-hit wonders of viral videos and then nothing happens. You kind of, 
Uh, and we just we were talking right before the podcast. What did you mean when you said uh, the, the the viral video is a thing of the past? Yeah, I, I mean, there was this moment about five, four or five years ago when we were starting Shareability where we could go 50... Shareability is your company. Shareability is my company. We work with brands and celebrities to help them grow via the internet, grow their brands. Um, And so where we could go literally 50-50 on a million organic views from brand accounts, not from some big influencer account, from a brand account, because we knew all the variables and and it was not a crowded platform, right? So we knew all the pieces and and we knew that we could go, if we hit it right and we hit the right emotions, the press would pick it up and they would start feeding the algorithm and it would go up in YouTube. And that's why we've had so many YouTube hits. But as it's gotten more and more crowded, right? And the algorithms have become less friendly to brands and people that pay money, right? Because that's the way that always goes in these platforms. That becomes harder and harder, right? So yeah, you can still capture virality, right? But virality comes and goes very quickly and you can't control it. So I preach be shareable because that is a scalable process where you can always be driving value for your brand. And then if you go value as an offshoot of that, if you go viral as an offshoot of that, you just get there faster. But you have the base and the foundation to actually take advantage of that virality. So we always, in the book, we talk about uh, the Chewbacca lady. You remember the Chewbacca lady? Yeah. So, so she came out of a Kohl's store. This is maybe uh, five years ago. It was one of the first Facebook Lives to go truly viral. She basically just came out. She was by herself in the car. She put on a Chewbacca mask and she just started laughing hysterically, right? And she couldn't stop laughing and she captured this real moment and it went online and it got, I don't know, hundreds of millions of views. And then she was on the Today Show and she was on, you know, Jimmy Kimmel. And for a week, she was the biggest celebrity in, in the world, right? Or at least in the US. And then two weeks later, she's gone. Yeah. Right? She, her life didn't change because she's a Chewbacca lady. She's not rich and famous now because she was a Chewbacca lady. She had a moment of fleeting fame, right? And it's great, but it didn't lead to anything. And then we just see virality on its own leads you nowhere, but shareability leads to growth. And it's really based on concepts that can kind of stand the test of time. So, so why is that? Like, what's the, what's the metric of, so obviously the number of shares is a good metric of success, but what do you, what is the YouTuber aiming for? Are they aiming for more subscribers when they get, are shareable? Yeah. So a lot of people are trying to break through right now. I mean, everyone's trying to be the next YouTuber, Instagram star, right? because it seems like a great life. Now, those people put in so much work that people don't understand, right? They've really developed their voice, which is yeah. a big part of the... So if you have value, if you know there's an audience that wants something and you know you can fill that value, right? Now you, you layer in the right emotional wrappers around that so people are going to connect to it and be a part of it. Now, the third piece is how do you develop your unique voice? We call it find your voice. Something unique that only you can bring to the world, right? To go provide value and emotion on these topics, Right? And so those are the three pieces. So, okay, so 7 billion people in the world. What do you tell someone who says, well, how do I find my unique voice? I went to high school, college, law school, like everyone else. What's unique? Yeah, so I I think you do it the way you did it, which is you said you used to write all these different articles. You would get real-time feedback on the things that connected, right? Trying is free, right? Right. Everyone's so scared to try. Like no one ever starts the process because they want to go from zero to 100, well, maybe the process is going from zero to two to four to seven to nine to 13, right? And put in the work. And along the way, you know, you have to, you know, we call it test before you invest. You have to, you have to put it out in the world and see in real time what people are responding to, find the, the areas of gold that you dig into, and then dig deep in those areas, right? It's not brain surgery, but if you put out five videos and one of them has an engagement rate of 3%, and the rest of them are 0.5%, let's look really hard at a thing that has a 3% engagement rate, even if only 200 people saw it, why are they engaging with that? What emotional trigger am I releasing? What do they like about my voice that's bringing value in a unique way? Why do they engage, right? And then, then that is all the data you need to go, okay, now, now give me more of that. And then you just start making incremental changes and incremental changes, and eventually those incremental changes become exponential. And, you know, I want to I wanna be respectful of your time. I always tend to run over time with people and and we have a few more minutes before you have to catch a plane. But uh, one thing you you kind of really hone in on in the book is those first seven seconds of yeah. a video are critical. And again, I can make the relationship to writing. The first sentence Everything. has to have not only shock and awe, yeah. but the first sentence has to have a cliffhanger, which normally people 
that's a new thing to yeah. have a first sentence be a cliffhanger. And but you're sort of saying basically the same thing with with videos. And I think that's important. But I I also notice in some of your like in the Dua Lipa music video, the first seven seconds nothing happens. True, and 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 music and video music videos are a different medium. I'll say that first off. Okay. Um, but I think the first seven. Have you ever watched a fifteen year old scroll through social media? Yeah, it's just boom, boom, boom. It is boom. the most intuitive thing you can ever imagine, right? Have you ever watched someone go through uh, Tinder, like rifle through Tinder? I have not. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing. You, you should do it sometime. Ask someone that's single that you work with. You say, "Hey, wh- let me watch you go through Tinder one time." They make s- s- decisions on who they're going to date in a millisecond, just based on the first reaction of the emotion to the image, right? It's like literally like this. And then it's like this, look, and then it's like, hey, it's amazing. And women, they're so intuitive. It's a, it's a, it's a thing to watch, right? So if, you, if that's the context that you're trying to share content, what are your odds that you're going to grab somebody that's going through their feed at that kind of pace and get them into your video? It's very slim, right? So if you don't catch them in the first seven seconds, really the first three seconds in most cases, they're gone and they're never coming back. And so we call that all, that whole process, we call it curb appeal. So it's, it's an analogy to a real estate agent, right? Like if you're selling a house, what is the curb appeal? If you're driving by a house that's for sale, how does the front yard look? Is it well manicured? Is, is the house the right color? Does it have the right window shades? Is there a pool in the back? Oh, that looks great. I'm actually going to go check it out and go inside, right? For, for a video, like you said, it has to have the right curb appeal. It has to have the right image. That draws you in. It needs to be. Te- it needs to be uh, connected with the right copy that says the image. The image and the copy need to make sense immediately. Because if it confuses me at all, even if I like it, I'll stop. But if it confuses me, now I'm gone. So simpler the better on the headlines. But they have to connect with the image to tell a story. So I go, okay, I know why I need to stop and spend time here because I have a million other options, right? And then all the tagging and the things as you go down the, the channel, there's a lot of things you got to be concerned about. But if you can marry the text and the image in a unique way that grabs people and explains exactly what you're trying to accomplish, you're way ahead of the game. So, you know, Tim Staples, I, I, I again, I know you have to get to the airport. Next time in New York, will, will you come back and do a part two? I would love to, man. So, because there's a lot more questions I have, uh, but the book is Break Through the Noise, the Nine Rules to Capture Global Attention by Tim Staples. Again, Break Through the Noise. Uh, nine Rules to Capture Global Attention. This is the only business... I hate this category. <laughs> so this lovely. is the only business self-help <laughs> book which actually made an impact on me, not for business reasons, but I agree with all these concepts about com- communication, which is so important on so many levels other than business, uh, just even for your own self-development uh, and then to see your examples and, and to to see kind of the origin stories of so many of these YouTube videos that I've loved through the years, uh, I, I was very excited to read this book. So, But I have a lot more questions, so we're going to have a part <laughs> two when you come back. But I think this, this was huge value this first hour. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. I'm Thanks, a big Tim. fan of what you're doing and, and look forward to talking more. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.